in terms of actually raising, I will say for, you know, equity funding, don't settle too quickly. I mean, we were very fortunate in our fundraising, but, you know, a lot of the traditional places and people that are in the space, I will say they'll likely try to convince you that you have to settle and perhaps lower your expectations to get funded. I mean, the truth is every case is different. We both know that. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'll just say, I think it's worth weighing your options carefully because, you know, you have an idea or eventually you'll have an idea when you're fundraising, when you go out there, what you're okay with, the terms you're okay with, evaluation. And, you know, sometimes when when someone's dangling money in front of you and you need money, <laughs> it's, you know, it, it can be really tempting, even if it's not on the terms you want. And it can seem perhaps like the easier option to take it but it is on their terms and I guess my my piece of advice is to strive for your terms and that's really what we did you know we had our terms and we said we're gonna go for it I mean again we were maybe lucky but we were successful in doing it and you know it may not always be possible you know you may not always get the terms that you want but the harder you try I think the closer you'll get to that. Welcome to MedSider Radio, where you can learn from proven medtech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey, it's Scott. In this episode of MedSider, we're talking with Dr. Asha Parekh, a biomedical engineer and the co-founder and CEO of Frontline Medical Technologies, a Canadian medical device startup. Frontline has developed a novel Reboa device that helps trauma patients survive in emergency situations. If you're not familiar with that acronym, neither was I before this interview, but it stands for Resuscitative Endovascular Balloon Occlusion of the Aorta. In this discussion with Asha, we learn more about her medtech journey from early stage device prototypes to raising venture capital to navigating the global regulatory landscape. Before we dive in, here's a bit more on her background. Asha has a PhD in biomedical engineering from Western University in Ontario. In 2015, she partnered with Dr. Adam Power, a practicing vascular surgeon, to co-found Frontline, which makes the Cobra OS device for trauma patients. Okay, so before we jump into the discussion, I want to mention a few things. First, since you're listening to MedSider, you're probably aware of how expensive it is to run clinical trials. Anyone who spent time in the medtech space knows that you typically need to commit hundreds of thousands of dollars, oftentimes millions, towards clinical research but it doesn't have to be that way. And here's why. Proofpilot is a new kind of hybrid clinical trial platform that enables you to run decentralized studies at costs that are 40 to 80% below traditional approaches. This is how they do it. First, you can easily design a trial in the Proofpilot visual protocol designer using their extensive library of templates. Next, you can launch those trials to participants and virtual staff without any technical development. Skip the integration of disconnected providers because Proofpilot pulls it all together seamlessly. For example, you can recruit, consent, and retain participants, then schedule, remind, and collect data, often with minimal manual labor, manage site data in real time, query adverse events quickly, and review data and preliminary analysis within hours, all in one compliant platform. Get up and running quickly with an annual license fee and launch as many trials as you like with an unlimited number of participants. To get started, visit MedSiderRadio.com forward slash ProofPilot. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash ProofPilot. For the MedSider audience, with an annual contract, ProofPilot will provide IRB approval for your first study at no cost. 
Some exclusions apply, so visit medsiderradio.com forward slash proofpilot to learn more. Okay, second, if you're into learning from proven medtech leaders and want to know when the new content and interviews go live, head over to medsider.com and sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get access to gated articles and lots of other interesting healthcare content. If you want even more inside info from medtech experts, think about a Medsider premium membership. We talk to experienced healthcare leaders about the nuts and bolts of running a business and bringing products to market. This is your place for valuable knowledge on specific topics like seed funding, prototyping, insurance reimbursement, and positioning a medtech startup for an exit. In addition to the entire back catalog of Medsider interviews over the past decade, premium members get exclusive Ask Me Anything interviews and masterclasses with some of the world's most successful medtech founders and executives. Since making the premium memberships available, I've been pleasantly surprised at how many people have signed up. So if you're interested, go to medsider.com to learn more. All right, without further ado, let's get to the interview. All right, Asha, welcome to Medsider Radio. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Scott. All right. Well, I recorded kind of your your more formal bio sort of at the outset of this uh, of this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the, I always like to start off kind of with the way you describe your personal background uh, leading up to your your time at Frontline. So let's start there. Sure. Uh, I will start by saying I was born and raised in Canada's lovely capital city of Ottawa. That's probably going back way longer than either of us have time for. (laughs) But uh, just a a tidbit of information there. I moved to London to go to Western University. And uh, I guess by the time I finished my PhD, I was too loud and proud of a purple Mustang to leave. So I've, I've been in London, Ontario ever since. Finished my PhD in biomedical engineering in 2015, and then I went on to do a couple of postdoctoral fellowships. And um, it was actually during one of those fellowships, the Medical Innovation Fellowship, where I met Dr. Adam Power, who is a practicing vascular surgeon, but I like to think more importantly, (laughs) my business partner, and he's a co-founder and CMO of Frontline. So we met during that fellowship, but it was actually the following year that we started developing the Cobra OS device through Frontline. And we had just been, you know, working on other projects. And when this idea developed, uh, it took off pretty quickly, actually. So there was some funding available for healthcare startups that we applied for and got approved for. And, you know, we both right from the start felt very strongly about the impact that this device could make. And that's what really led us to discussions and uh, ultimately the decision to, to give this a real go. So that, you know, we founded Frontline at that time. I jumped into this world of entrepreneurship (laughs) to get it off the ground and uh, uh, we haven't looked back since. Yeah, that's great. I, I love the I love the high level overview, and and there's certainly some things that I want to unpack before we go too far um, into yeah. kind of what the early early formative years of Frontline looked like. But um, yeah. you you mentioned that you've got a, a PhD in biomedical engineering from from Western University. Is your undergrad uh, degrees in the, in the same field? Yeah. So at the time, actually, Western did not offer uh, a biomedical engineering uh, undergrad. Um, It does now. Happy to say that we have developed a biomedical engineering undergrad program here now. But uh, I did biochemical at that time. Okay, got it. Got it. So 
let's talk a little bit more about those experiences, mm-hmm. like in your in your postdoc, because I, I, I mm-hmm. there, there's a fair amount of um, whether MDs and and also you know uh, folks in graduate school, whether they're in PhD programs or master's programs. Mm-hmm. That are th- that that are are entrepreneurial like oriented or, or minded, mm-hmm. and come across mm-hmm. you know various ideas. So when you were in your postdoc, did you did you envision kind of like you know kind of going going into one the medtech space or even like you know <laughs> even more interesting like starting your mm-hmm. own uh, device company? Yeah, you know, being completely transparent, this was not planned at all. Um, <laughs> you know, going from my, I did have some industry exposure even from my PhD. I worked with a company there, but going into, so the first postdoctoral fellowship that I did was this medical innovation fellowship. So just to, you know, give a little bit of a background there, um, it it is not a traditional postdoctoral fellowship. So, um, you know, an academic postdoc um, is, is quite different. So the medical innovation fellowship is actually all structured around medical device commercialization. You basically, there's a series of sections in the program that you go through, but it's basically you spend the, if I were to sum it up in a sentence, you basically spend the year engineering, trying to engineer new medical devices for unmet clinical needs. So that that is what gave me the first exposure really to, you know, get a taste of what entrepreneurship could look like. Again, even at that point, there was no plan to start a business. You know, it, it all kind of unfolded naturally. And you know, as I mentioned, it was actually the following year that we actually even decided to do this and came up with this idea. So for me personally, it wasn't like an intentional plan, but I, I will say I'm very happy to hear a lot of students that I speak to at speaking engagements or, you know, in conferences and other platforms now that a lot more people are considering this as you know, an alternative to the traditional academic or industrial uh, pathways and, you know, are setting an intentional plan to start their own business. Got it. Okay. And and would you compare the medical innovation kind of fellowship that you did at Western? Mm-hmm. Is it is it somewhat similar to the Stanford biodesign program? Are there some parallels? Yeah. I love that you know about that. Of course you do. Um, But it was actually, yeah, so this this program is run in conjunction with the University of Minnesota. But this whole program that like it it is all based on the Stanford program. So that is kind of where uh, the idea stemmed from. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And and for those listening that are familiar with the University of Minnesota program, um, you might find an interview I did with Dr. Art Erdman. Um, Gosh, it's probably dating back seven or eight years ago now, but it was a great interview. And we learned, uh, mm-hmm. learned a lot more about the, uh, that type of program at the university of Minnesota. So, so good stuff. That That's super cool mm-hmm. to kind of, to, and, and I'm sure that, you know, as we learn a little bit more about your story, it'll be especially interesting knowing that you didn't necessarily intend, you know, to finish up this fellowship and start a, start a med tech <laughs> company. But I, I want to learn yeah. a little bit more about the Cobra OS device, but maybe first tell us mm-hmm. like what it is and then take us back in time to like how, how this idea uh, came about? Because I know you referenced um, your CMO, who's a vascular mm-hmm. surgeon. It sounds like mm-hmm. maybe the idea sort of originated with, with him, but kind of tell us, mm-hmm. let's, let's start with what it is, you know, that kind of the, the pain points that your device solves for. And then, um, and then we'll learn a little bit more about the origin stories. Yeah, yeah. Happy to do that. So the Cobra OS, uh, you know, it is a medical device. It is a temporary device. I will start by saying that, you know, basically mostly for trauma it's used right now. And 
trauma in situations where there's internal bleeding. So if you can imagine, you know, a civilian setting or a military setting, if somebody has an injury to their hand or their leg, you can apply pressure to it and try to stop the bleeding. But when it's in your torso region, uh, it's internal bleeding, you can't really compress it and effectively stop the bleeding. So unfortunately, a lot of those patients bleed out if you're outside of a hospital before they act, they can make it there to get into the hands of a surgeon. And so the intent with this type of device is that you put in the device to the patient and basically you, basically you block blood flow above the injury. And so you're turning off the tap to the lower limbs and to the injury site. But what you do by doing that, you're making sure that your brain and your heart continue to receive blood. Those are the two vital organs to keep you in good standing if you are going to survive this type of injury. And so that that is at a high level, uh, you know, basically you're short circuiting that. So your heart is now not pumping to your whole body, but you've made the circuit your brain and your heart. And then again, it is a bridge. It's not definitive care. You take the patient to somewhere where they can receive definitive care and you would remove our device. Got it. Got it. So this is, is this a completely like novel type of technology? It's not like you saw something that currently existed and just really wasn't that good and you improved upon it. Is this completely new? <laughs> no. So that's exactly what we did. <laughs> Actually. <Okay. laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Coming up with that concept, uh, to be quite honest, we would have to do a lot more studies, uh, many, many more studies to prove that that is safe. Um, but, you know, it is actually lucky for us that the concept of blocking the aorta and short circuiting the body um, has already been done. So that kind of uh, the crazier concept, uh, the larger concept of it is, is not what we're trying to prove here. It actually dates back, you know, several years ago, but only recently did it really start to, you know, get marketed for this application. So, you know, there, there, I would say there, there are a few, few similar types of technologies out there. Um, and, and to broadly speak about the differentiation that you asked about, it, a lot of it comes down to the technology. So the procedure itself requires right now, uh, you know, a very high level of skill to do. You know, it's not necessarily the easiest for somebody out in the field to be doing this type of procedure. And so, you know, we don't necessarily want uh, the untrained person doing it at this time. A lot of it comes down to, yeah, yeah. And so, and and it also takes a lot of time. So, I mean, on average, even in a controlled setting, like a hospital, some of the data that's out there is, you know, an average of eight minutes. And, you know, if you think about somebody bleeding for eight minutes, I'm sure you can appreciate that a lot of blood can be lost in that time. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, so again, to, to differentiate with what makes ours so, you know, great and disruptive to this market is, is primarily comes from the size. Uh, we call it the profile, which really just means the size. You're putting a device into a relatively small artery. And the bigger that device is, the more complicated and more time it takes. And, you know, again, potential complications arise the larger that that device is. So we've been able to 
Uh, and I know, again, this is going to be uh, maybe a, a little bit too much into the weeds, but starting, you know, with devices that are, are still used are uh, 12 French, which is just a, it's a measurement of the diameter. So the equivalent is something like four millimeters. And, you know, right now there are devices that have come down in size to about seven French. And, you know, they were called the game changers because they were able to lower that size by so much. And we have actually come with a four French device, which is like 1.3 to 1.5 millimeters. Like it's tiny, you know, and so that that's where a lot of the benefits come from because that actually also reduces the number of steps that need to be used. So it reduces the time along with some other features, but that, that is the, I'll be honest, a lot of people don't believe that you can have a four French device that does what our device does. So um, sure. that is probably the key feature there. Got it. No, that makes, that, that makes sense. And, and that, mm-hmm. you, you answered my next question, which was going to be like, what did, what are you, you know, you, you, there's existing devices that um, are currently being mm-hmm. used, but what did you try to optimize mm-hmm. for? And it definitely sounds like profile or size. It was kind of the biggest, the biggest differentiator there. On that note, like that, that probably serves as a, as a good transition um, to talk a little bit more about like how this idea even came about. And you mentioned Dr. Dr. Adam Power. So can you can you take us back to like I think you mentioned you were in your postdoc fellowship maybe when okay. you know when when you and Dr. Power kind of you know sort of work it worked on this idea. But let tell us a little mm-hmm. bit more about about what that looked like in the you know in the in the back of the napkin sort of days, if you will. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, uh, you you hit the nail on the head. It, you know, he as a surgeon, you know, Adam was he saw the problem firsthand, right? Like the patients that could have survived, the complications that were occurring in these cases. So he was able to identify that need, and you know, truly being able to draw on where those complications are coming from, you know, basically is what got the ball rolling. And then we met and we had to make things happen and we had to make things and make bigger things happen. I should say (laughs) from there, it just, you know, naturally took its course. You know, we started working together like, yeah, like you said, during, during the fellowship and uh, from there, because things were moving pretty quickly once we got that funding and, you know, we decided to make the leap. Yeah. It it has really just taken a life of its own. Got it. Got it. And so in those, in those early days, when you're, when you're kind of, you, I can imagine you're maybe, um, you know, kind of really going from zero to one where you've got this, Mm -hmm. you know, this idea that Adam kind of, you know, brings to you, you're a biomedical, Mm -hmm. you know, engineer, you have your PhD. So you're obviously pretty Mm -hmm. familiar with like how to, how to build things, right? Before getting funding, like, I mean, did you did you struggle with finding you know the resources to try to start you know start prototyping and you know to sort of like make something tangible? Tell us a little bit more about that because I think there's a lot of and the reason I ask yeah. is a lot of a lot of folks that listen uh, that are in the Medsider community that that have mm-hmm. great ideas, right? They're in the trenches, they yeah. see all kinds of ideas, but they don't know how to even get started, right? And you and I both know how hard it is to raise money mm-hmm. without something tangible. So tell us a little mm-hmm. bit more about those early prototyping days. Oh yeah. That that's the fun stuff, right? Like literally <laughs> pulling at like, how can we do this? You know, there were, let's say, you know, <laughs> going from party balloons to other balloon type 
materials that were used to see, you know, even for a proof of concept, I'm trying to use my, choose my words carefully here. Um, you know, basically the concept, you have the concept and how, how, uh, we went about it was to say, how can we achieve this? So we want we want to achieve this, 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 and this. And for all of those things, what are our options? And what's the best, um, you know, combination of all of these things to make the best device? And so we started prototyping again with things as simple as a party balloon and just seeing if we could, you know, achieve by concept in in models that were not relevant at all, of course, as you mm-hmm. as I'm sure you know. Um, yeah, so I mean, I would say there were definitely a few more than a few iterations to to kind of get things going, but it didn't take long at all. Um, you know, as I said, things moved quickly. It didn't take long to get to a point where we knew uh, we could make this into a working commercial device and we needed to get the prototyping on a more sophisticated scale, at which point we enlisted help from a bigger company. Got it. Got it. And t- tell us a little, I, I want to talk a little bit more about kind of your, your, your approach to regulatory as well as, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how you begin to think about like establishing some clinical evidence. But since we're on, mm-hmm. we're in the kind of the, these, you know, this part of the conversation, we're talking about some of the, mm-hmm. the, the early days. What, what mm-hmm. did that look like? I mean, raising money for early stage med tech, you know, concepts is mm-hmm. extremely tough. So mm-hmm. you mentioned you partnered with the biggest, uh, a bigger company. Did the, the initial capital infusion come from, from sort of the you know, an accelerator or did it, did it come mm-hmm. from somewhere else? Uh, yeah. So we, yeah, the initial funding was from a program that was partially funded by a local medical network and then uh, FedDev. So our, like our government uh, of Got Canada. It. Yeah. And beyond that, yeah, I mean, you're, you're very right. And I think we all know, like if, if a startup, a pre-revenue startup doesn't have money, it is very hard to get things done. Um, so, you know, we knew we were good for that first year and then we knew we had to start fundraising and, you know, we've had a little bit, a little bit further help with grants. So, you know, a little bit more government funding, but we have, uh, privately raised the rest of our, of our funds. And so to give a little bit more detail around that, we did, uh, I'm sure you've heard of a safe agreement. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, so simple agreement for future equity. So we did our first raise on a safe. And then uh, when we did another equity round, we converted the safe. Got it. And and for those for those other, you know, medtech entrepreneurs that are in a similar boat, maybe they've received a little bit of, you know, grant funds, or maybe they've thrown in their own their own capital, or maybe raised a little bit for friends and family. Like what, what are the some of the best tips that you you learned, you know, raising that early, early stage money? Cause, you know, in 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 experience as well as as well as uh, you know, a lot of the uh, a lot of the folks that I've interviewed here for Medside Radio, I mean, those are typically the toughest rounds to raise, right? When you're just trying to get out yeah. of blocks. So what were kind of your keys to success, mm-hmm. you know, in some of those uh, some of those those mm-hmm. first rounds? Yeah, I mean, I will say we do always try for non-dilutive and I will say it may seem obvious, but it's surprising to me how many people don't look for non-dilutive funding. Um, the accelerators and and that, you know, they can be great as well if they do give some initial funding in those days, even a little bit can really help. But they also have other resources normally at these 
uh, accelerators. So they help you grow in ways beyond funding as well, right, as you're getting off the ground. So I think those are definitely beneficial. In terms of actually raising, I will say for, you know, equity funding, don't settle too quickly. I mean, we were very fortunate in our fundraising, but, you know, a lot of the traditional places and people that are in the space, I will say they'll likely try to convince you that you have to settle and perhaps lower your expectations to get funded. I mean, the truth is every case is different. We both know that. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I'll just say I think it's worth weighing your options carefully because, you know, you have an idea or eventually you'll have an idea when you're fundraising, when you go out there, what you're okay with, the terms you're okay with, evaluation. And, you know, sometimes when when someone's dangling money in front of you and you need money, it's, <laughs> you know, it, it can be really tempting, even if it's not on the terms you want. And it can seem perhaps like the easier option to take it, but it is on their terms. And I guess my my piece of advice is to strive for your terms. And that's really what we did. You know, we had our terms and we said, we're going to go for it. I mean, again, we were maybe lucky, but we were successful in doing it. And, you know, it may not always be possible. You know, you may not always get the terms that you want, but the harder you try, I think the closer you'll get to that. Got it. I, I, I love the advice, especially uh, especially from your perspective, kind of as a, as a, as a first time medtech entrepreneur. And I, mm. I, I'm in the back of my head, I'm thinking about like a, you know, I asked Renee Ryan the same comment. She's a um, pretty well-known medtech entrepreneur that's sort of sat on both sides of the table, you know, as an, as an investor. And now mm-hmm. she's leading um, Cala Health, you know, and she, mm-hmm. she mentioned something along the same lines in terms of don't settling, but she said, don't settle. She, in essence, she was saying like, look for the right investors, right? So you that's may have right. to settle a little bit when it comes to dilution, but also at the same time, don't settle for, for partners or investors that you're more so investors that you don't want to, that you don't see as long-term partners because that's incredibly important. So would you have the same, same sort of sentiment? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to cut you off. I 1000% agree with that. It is very, very important. And, you know, on, I think in, on every level of the business and, and that is one of them, you know, uh, who finding that good fit, you know, people may think that they're just giving you money and it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, I, I think it really, is a key key aspect, and especially depending on how uh, involved they're going to be in things, or you know, if if they're not involved, that's another thing as well. But that you know, just finding that right fit for what you're looking for, absolutely, uh, very very important. Got it. Good stuff. Good stuff. Any before we transition mm-hmm. to kind of like your your approach to in the early days to to navigating mm-hmm. the regulation and mm-hmm. you know pursuing some initial clinical. Any other tips that you'd, you'd give in terms of some of that early money besides not settling? Was there anything, and, and feel free to get into the weeds, you know, if something, if, that, if something stands out or we can, you know, we can definitely move on as well. Just before yeah. we wrap up this equity topic. Yeah. This topic, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, again, um, even the, the piece about, you know, uh, where you get the money from, it really depends on, on the project, but I think uh, I think we covered everything. Find the right fit. You know, don't don't settle too quickly. I mean, I really like some people may have no choice. So I feel bad if, you know, someone's like, well, I should really keep (laughs) keep at it. And they, you know, but, you know, I think everyone also has that 
the last thing that I wanted to say was you, you do have a gut check, right? Like you have your options, you have, but you, you normally have some gut feeling about what you should be doing. And in some cases, I mean, one of the things that we have to do in this world of entrepreneurship is take risks, you know, um, and that is part of it as well. Hey there, it's Scott. And thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadim Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.